before we get into tonight's message, I just wanted to share with you this um, really, really, really useful piece of information. And the wonderful thing about being on the other side of this camera is that I can hear no one in protest at all. But um, so far today, God, this is a prayer of someone. So far today, God, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or even overindulgent. I'm really glad about that, Lord. But in a few moments, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot of help from you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Anyone prayed a prayer like that before? Well, if you have, that's fine because it's a good prayer because we all need God's help and we all need to know that we're not going to be perfect. But um, I think any prayer to God is a good prayer. You know why? Because you're reminded that he's with you. You're reminded that he's with you and he loves you and he's listening. If you've got your Bibles, can you open your Bibles with me to, uh, to Mark chapter 2? And I'm just going to share a few thoughts uh, from this scripture. And, you know, um, we're in the middle of our Carriers series, which I was going to play the video for, but I thought you all, you've all seen the video already. Uh, it's a series through Mark's Gospel. And um, the idea is that this world needs some hope. This world needs some love. You know, that this world does not need judgmentalism. It does not need religiosity. It does not need any kind of fake witness for Jesus. It just needs genuine, real people that get real with a real God. That's what this world needs. And that means that you and I need to be carriers of everything that Jesus is, you know, carriers of Jesus, carriers of hope, carriers of love, carriers of grace, carriers of power, carriers of forgiveness, carriers of self-confidence, carriers of faith, Carriers of lots of things. Um, and so we've gone through just Mark's gospel and we've looked at different ways that um, we can be carriers of something. You know, we even looked at that. We can be carriers of paralyzed people to Jesus and he will He will heal. You know, just like he healed that paralyzed man. You know, some things stop us from moving forwards. And you and I can be carriers to bring those people to Jesus in prayer or to invite them along to church or whatever. Um, and we learned about how Jesus chooses disciples and he chose fishermen and uh, and Mark misses uh, a couple of other disciples that Jesus chooses in John. I think it's Bartholomew and Nathaniel, I think, um, from memory. But we see here so far in, in Mark, he's chosen publicly Peter and Andrew, James and John, or Peter was called Simon. But uh, and then. Then we see last week, um, we saw that he chose uh, the tax collector, Matthew. He chose Matthew. And he ended up eating with Matthew and Matthew's friends. And the religious people didn't like it. And Jesus came as a doctor to heal those who know they are sick, not those who think they are righteous. All right. So remember, we're all caught up now. So here we are in Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. And it seems like a discussion about fasting. 
I'll just go through verse by verse pretty much and we'll do a, a small little Bible study, okay? So you ready? All right, so once John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Now, this is talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a crazy man. Well, he wasn't crazy, actually. He was actually a great man. Jesus gave him a rap sheet as the greatest man born of a woman. He was he was the, the prophet who was going to announce the way of the Messiah. Uh, but a lot of people thought he was a bit nuts. I mean, he ate grasshoppers and honey, and he lived out in the wilderness, and he wore camel skin, and he, he looked a little bit, you know, different. But um, in one section of the gospel, we're told that John came uh, fasting, but people thought he had a devil in him. And Jesus came eating and drinking, and people thought that he was a glutton and a friend of sinners. And, but so John, John practiced fasting, and his disciples, those who followed him, practiced fasting as well. But also we read here, not just John's disciples, but the Pharisees' disciples were, were there too. So, or Pharisees, they didn't really have disciples, but, um, but they fasted. Did you know that there is only one time that God commanded people to fast, his people to fast? The Israelites in the Old Testament, one time, and it's to happen one day every year, one day a year. They were to fast on the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was the day where the whole nation's sins are forgiven. They'd be at one with their God because of the sacrifices that were made. Because of the blood that was spilled, because of the death that was on the sacrificial altar, they would be at one with God, at one atonement. And it was a Day of Atonement where, um, where the Israelites could know that they were with God, one with God. And it was a special day, and they'd do it every single year, year in, year out, on one day. For one day, they would fast. But then, but then, there were additional fasts that happened. Uh, so, for example, fasting really is, is, is a reaction to an inward mourning or an inward sorrow, uh, an inward repentance, uh, an inward need of help, knowing that you can't, Fix the problem yourself. And so people would fast because they just didn't feel like eating. They couldn't stomach anything because they were so possibly worried about a situation that was coming out, an army that was invading or something, or they were sorry about their sin or their nation's sin, and so they would fast. Has anyone ever fasted like that, where you just heard the news of a loved one that passed away and you just couldn't eat, or you heard some terrible news he just couldn't eat. That's the kind of fast, right? But then what would happen over time is that the religious establishment, the religious sector, would, would make more fasts happen as a way of showing their piousness, their piety, their holiness, their goodness to everyone around them. And they would show off how many times they would fast. You see, fasting was supposed to be a private thing if it was because of mourning for your sin. Unless it was the Day of Atonement, everyone fasted. We know everyone knew each other was fasting. But when it's a private fast, um, it was supposed to be private. But we're told in another, in another gospel, in uh, a parable that Jesus shared about a tax collector and a Pharisee that went to the temple, 
you might know it. I think it's Luke 18. And the, um, the, fa- the Pharisee prays this prayer. He says, Lord, I thank you so much that I'm not like this, you know, tax collector scum, but I do all these awesome things for you. And I fast twice a week, fasting twice a week. That means not eating for two days out of seven. Have you ever done that before? I don't know why anyone would love to do that. I love food. I'm, I'm a foodie. I like food. I'll probably have a food baby at the moment. I'm not sure, but it'll, it'll, there's one coming anyway for, for dinner time. But I love food. I love food. Um, and I love parties. I love having people over. We can't really do it anymore because of the COVID-19 situation, but we have seven people in our family. So every day is a party here. But whenever there's a party, there's always food, right? And when you're, when you're in a good mood, when you're celebrating something, you can't fast. And um, these disciples of John and the Pharisees, they come up to Jesus and they notice that Jesus' disciples are not fasting. They're not doing the two days a week or they're not doing some kind of other special fast that lasts for five days or a 12-day or... And they're noticing that Jesus' disciples don't fast. They probably noticed that Jesus did fast. You know, we, with the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus did fast for 40 days, 40 nights. And uh, there were a couple of other places where Jesus would have fasted. But that was his own personal relationship with God. Uh, but these Pharisees, they noticed publicly that no, no fasting is happening in Jesus' team. The, fa- the disciples aren't fasting in fact they're just eating food with tax collectors and sinners they're just along with jesus and it's causing a bit of a stir they say why don't your disciples fast like john's disciples and the pharisees do and so jesus responds with this with this statement he says in verse 19 do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom and the answer is of course not why would, why would you celebrate, why would you not celebrate with the groom? You know, Jesus loves parties so much that his first public miracle was turning water into wine at a party, which happened to be a wedding, which is beautiful. Because the wedding situation, I think Jesus chose that really, or that miracle to happen because a wedding is so symbolic. It's so symbolic. In the Old Testament, the wedding between a man and a woman was so symbolic to God's love for his people, the church. And we find that motif, that image going through the New Testament as well with Jesus being the, the, the bridegroom and the church, you and me, any believer, all believers being the bride. And, and one day, one day the bridegroom is going to come from heaven and he's going to take the bride to be with him to live in his father's house, which is so awesome. That's heaven, right? And here Jesus, he uses the illustration of a wedding and a groom. He introduces himself here as the groom. He says, do wedding guests fast? In other words, should the disciples fast while the groom, the Messiah, is with them? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. Marriage was an Old Testament thing. And I've got a few scriptures here, but I won't go into them because it's too lengthy. But there's so much about how God was um, wanting to one day come and redeem his people like a, like a 
bridegroom would go and um, get the bride and then they'd go live together uh, and consummate their marriage together. And it was just wonderful. But Jesus doesn't say fasting is wrong. Jesus doesn't say you guys are religious and fasting is just a religious thing. So you shouldn't have to do it. He's not saying that at all. Jesus isn't saying the Old Testament way of doing things is gone. We're doing a new thing here. He says in verse 20, someday the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast. Now, when the groom was taken away from the from all of the other people that were celebrating with him, that meant that the groom was taken away to be with his wife. But this word here that Mark wants us to really see is that it's talking about Jesus being forcefully or the groom being forcefully taken away. In, in Isaiah 53, verse 8, we see the, a similar word. Um, it says in Isaiah 53, verse 8, speaking of Jesus or the coming Messiah, coming servant of God, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. And this is the word that his life was cut short in midstream. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. And read, read Isaiah 53. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. And, and it's wonderful because what it does look forward to is, is it looks forward to the day. Jesus talks about the day when the groom will be taken away. That's the day of atonement where Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, was sacrificed on the cross for your sin and for my sin, not just Israel's sin, but everyone's sin, so that we can be forgiven and know that wonderful relationship of at one with God, not through some sacrifice of an animal on an altar, but through the sacrifice of the, of the one and only Son of God on the altar of the cross and that day of atonement. That would be a time to fast, he says. And rightly so, the disciples if we read ahead, they were very dis disturbed and everyone was sad that Jesus was being sacrificed, being taken away and, and put to death on a Roman crucifix outside of Jerusalem. Rightly so, that would be the time where they would fast. Now, before we get into verse 21 and 22, let us get some context here. This context here is Jesus responding to people asking about his disciples. The context here is Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples are being picked on by others by what they do or don't do or didn't do. Jesus' choice of disciple is not what others expected. And that's the context here. Rabbis would choose the most learned or the most learned would choose the rabbis. I wanted to read to you from here. Uh, I've got here a, a, an official an official letter to uh, Jesus, son of Joseph, woodcrafter, carpenter shop, Nazareth, from the Jordan Management Consultants of Jerusalem. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist 
and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. <coughs> Simon Peter is, a, is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alpheus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants. Now, you know that's not real, right? I hope so anyway. But it, it kind of gives you a bit of a picture as to um, the seeming stupidity of the disciples that Jesus chose. He didn't, he didn't go and choose the, uh, the straight-A students from the synagogue school. He didn't go and pick the most important people that would be effective in advertising. You know, you see ad advertising on TV and you see celebrities or sports stars, you know, because it's more likely that someone will listen to them. Jesus did a pick people like that. <laughs> we need to know that the context here is about Jesus's disciples. We also need to know that Jesus is not objecting to fasting. Jesus fasted and says that his followers will also fast. He even talks about a, a young boy who has uh, fits, a demonic fits, and uh, he heals the boy and the disciples come to him afterwards and say, how, how did you do that? And Jesus said, uh, this can be only by prayer and fasting. So fasting is something that Jesus did and taught. So he's not objecting to fasting here. And Jesus is not objecting to the teaching of the Pharisees either. He's not objecting to the teaching of the Pharisees to fast. In Matthew chapter 23, if you want to read it from verse 1 to 3, it goes like this. This is Jesus. He said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses, or they sit in the seat of Moses. They are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. Jesus says, so practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. Jesus says, practice and obey whatever they tell you, because they're the official interpreters of the law of Moses, but they don't practice what they teach, so don't follow their example. And so the teaching of the Pharisees is not something that Jesus is, Jesus is against here. You know, because we're looking at here these two illustrations that Jesus uses, garment 
and wine or a wine skin. And Jesus is not talking about fasting. He's not talking about the Pharisees teaching. He's not talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. I don't think it's my own personal opinion. It is Jesus choice of disciples that is being questioned here, not his views on fasting or sowing or wine or the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Those things are all good. Sowing even is good. But so they say, so they say, why don't they fast like us? And Jesus says, how can they? I'm here. How can they fast? How can they be in mourning when I'm here with them? How can they go through a time of sorrow for their sin when I'm right here, the remedy for their sin? How can they go through a time of of depression and sadness when I am the joy? How can they when I'm here with them? Then Jesus goes on to say some very ordinary things that everybody knew back then. Very ordinary things. He says this in verse 21. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. The message title for tonight, this week, is called New Skins. New Skins. See you, Josh. New Skins. If we have ever heard anyone teach on these two verses before in our life, then you have already probably drawn your conclusion before I even suggest to you something that I think. Verse 21. Let's have a look at it. Verse 21. You got your Bibles? Can I suggest to you, verse 21, besides who would patch old clothing, I would say a worn student, a student that is already learned. Who would patch an old student with a new cloth, a new mindset, a new teaching, a new authority and teaching that Jesus had. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Old wine skins being used wine skins. A used student. An already previously taught student. And the new wine being new, fresh mindset. New, fresh teaching. In other words, when I'm choosing disciples, says Jesus, why would I choose something that's already been stretched a bit in this way if I want to teach it this? It can't handle it. And we find that through the Bible. We find that through the Gospels. The The only exceptions I can see is that there's there's one man who comes to Jesus and he and he really, really listens to Jesus. And he wants to wants to learn more from Jesus. And his name's Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. 
But he got really close. You know, that, that famous verse from John 3.16 are Jesus' words to Nicodemus because Nicodemus was genuinely on a search to see if this person that he was speaking with was actually the Messiah. There's also another a place that I could see where another man talks with Jesus about what's the best commandment. And, uh, and then this man says, I see you're a good teacher. And, uh, and then Jesus says these words, something like this. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And then from then on, everyone f- feared asking Jesus any more words, any more questions. I can't remember the reference for it, but you can look it up. Uh, he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So there's, there are some religious sector personalities that are old garments, old wineskins that have been taught in their tradition that still can or still are very close to receiving the words of Jesus. Any wonder why the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the fishermen and the sinners gravitated towards Jesus's words because his words could, they could, they could, they could contain his words. They could grasp his words or they could try anyway. Can I suggest to you tonight that Jesus is using these illustrations to teach people about how it is very difficult to teach an old dog new tricks. Now, just for those of you like me who aren't very familiar with materials and sewing and stitches and patches or wineskins. I never had wineskins when I was a young fellow. I used to always see flasks or bottles. That's what we use nowadays. We don't use wineskins. So with the garment, an an old garment has already been shrunk. And a new patch on an old, already shrunk, already worn garment would just, once it's washed or used, the new patch would shrink and the stitching around that would would tear both the new patch and the garment. And it would make the issue, the problem worse. And the, and the wineskins, they would make these wineskins out of uh, animal hide and they would stitch up the bits where the legs were or the tail or the head and they'd stitch them up. And so it'd be a, it'd be a malleable, flexible skin might be a goat skin or an animal or a, or a sheep skin or some kind of skin. And they would use these skins and they'd fill up with, with new wine. So crushed grapes, juice, wine straight in, and then they'd seal it up. Now, while it was sealed up inside that wine, in, inside that carcass, so to speak, inside those skins, it was all sealed up, but it, it would, it would expand and, and, um, and stretch because of the fermentation process that was going on inside. The gases and all of those things that that make wine alcoholic, make wine last a long time. Now, wine, for Jesus' day, it wasn't so that everyone could get drunk, although people could get drunk, but water was very scarce. And so wine in that way would be a way where people could carry around fluids for for their own sustenance, for their own health. And, and so these fluids, this, this wine would, would expand the skin. Now, once it was fully expanded, 
after a certain period, the, the person would know, okay, it's time to pour the wine. So they'd pour the wine out. Now, once all that wine emptied out of that skin, it was no use using that skin again. Why? Because it was already stretched. It was already stretched. So if you put more new wine into there and then sealed it up, guess what would happen? It would expand even more and possibly break and pop like a balloon. And not only would you ruin the skin that was containing that wine, that newer wine, but you'd also have a leak and you'd lose all the wine in the mud, in the dust. And so it'd be worse than, than starting off with. So whenever you want to put new wine into something, you don't use old wine skin. Whenever you wanted to patch up an old garment, you don't use, you don't use new garment material. Everybody knows that. And that's what Jesus is saying. Everybody knows that. These things are like this in reality. And it's the same with my disciples. Why would Jesus select people or disciples to follow him that were mostly despised, common outcasts that were looked down upon by society? Why would he choose them? Why not choose from the cream of the crop at the local religious schools? Why does he pick fishermen, tax collectors, zealots and nobodies? Well, I think the answer is because they are more able to handle Jesus's lessons. Now, I didn't say they were able to, but they were more able to. They were more willing to bend at the seams when Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They were more able to grasp the, the teaching and the mindset that Jesus was trying to get into them. They didn't always get it. And we laugh at those moments, but they were more teachable. They were less rigid. They were new wineskins. They were new skins. And I hope that you and I can be new skins. You know, that we can go through situations where we can celebrate that Jesus is with us. We don't need to be mourning. We don't need to be worried about what's going to happen because God is with us. I think it's John Wesley was quoted as saying that in all of it. The wonderful thing is that God is with us. The religious sector had turned God's heart in the law to a head knowledge and heartless rituals. They turn fasting into some kind of program, some kind of show, some kind of outward appearance of piety and a holier-than-thou approach. In Matthew 23, again, um, in verse 12, Jesus talks about these people. You know, even though we should listen to their teaching, we shouldn't follow their example. He says that they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. They enlarge their phylacteries, is the word, and they lengthen their tassels. It's all about show. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. They love, they crave the attention and the honour that society can give them. They love to have people call them reverend or rabbi. They love to have the fruit salad at the end of their, their name on a letter, diploma of something. They love all the titles and the positions. They love to be noticed. They had been invited to know 
God's heart, but they were driven by their own desires to show their own holiness in order for others to see how awesome they were. But Jesus knew their hearts. Jesus knew it was a show. Besides, says Jesus, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth. The new teaching would shrink and rip away from the old mentality, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And we know that actually happened, is it eventually ended up with Jesus's death on the cross as they cried out, crucify him, led by the religious sector. Crucify him. He's blaspheming. They couldn't handle the teaching that Jesus was giving them. There is a principle we can learn from this passage, I think. We can put new ideas, sorry, we cannot put new ideas into old mindsets. We cannot put new teaching into old systems. We cannot expect to get new results with old behaviours. New skins are needed. New skins are needed. The men and women Jesus chose to follow him were new skins. Fresh skins, able to stretch and give with the fermenting process. Could you imagine being one of those skins and feeling the pressure on the inside and the fermenting process and the gases? It's not fun, but it's a process that needs to happen to bring good wine, fresh new wine. And they were able to give with the fermenting process of Jesus's new and living way. And eventually, God would fill these new skins with his Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we see that, that God poured out like wine almost his Holy Spirit into these new skins so that they would continue the movement that Jesus instigated. Inviting others along to follow Jesus and be his carriers of his way his teaching, and his new wine. The whole point of filling skins with wine is to get wine. The whole point of fixing a, fix a hole with a patch is to get use out of the garment. The whole point of Jesus refreshing us and saving us is so that we could be used to share the wonderful good news that we have Forgiveness with God through Jesus Christ. The whole point is that we don't bottle it all up in ourselves, but we but we share it. It overflows and brings joy to those around us. But how do we get new skins? You might say, "Oh, my skin's a bit a bit uh, less stretchy than it used to be." I'm not talking about your physical skin. I'm talking about the skin of your heart. How can we loosen the skin of our heart? How can how can we have fresh wine skin hearts? Well, easy, the three R's, repent, replace, and relax. Repent means change the way you think. It's exactly what the disciples had to do when they followed Jesus. It's exactly the the message that Jesus declared from the get-go. He said, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. Repenting is just changing the way you think, and the way that you think reflects your attitude and your behavior. Let's start with changing the way we think. Let's change the way we think about life and come at it from Jesus' terms. Come at our families through Jesus' eyes, through our, uh, our finances through Jesus' eyes, through our difficulties through Jesus' eyes, through our loved ones. Let's look at people around us 
through the eyes of Jesus. Let's change the way we think, aligning with Jesus. And let's replace the old thoughts with new thoughts. It's Romans 12, verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So we repent, we change the way we think, we replace the old thoughts with the new thoughts by the Holy Spirit's help, aligning our thoughts with what God would say is true. And then the last thing is we relax. Don't strive for results. Just relax in that. Relax in your relationship with God through Jesus. Don't strive for results. Or don't strive for attention from anyone but God. Jesus chooses you. He chose Every single disciple he chose, he, he chose them for a reason. And if he's chosen you, he's chosen you for a reason. He wants to pour out his new wine into you so that you would overflow to the world around you, that you would be a carrier of joy, a carrier of hope, carrier of, of wonderful forgiveness of sins through his name, and a carrier of power, a carrier of his Holy Spirit, or you might be a carrier for Jesus. Okay.